Good morning. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Kimberly Flowers. I'm the director here of our global food security work, as well as a program called the Humanitarian Agenda. When I look out in the audience at these events, I always see faces I've seen for years and faces that I've never seen before. So I'm going to do something a little different. Raise your hand if this is the very first public CSIS event you've ever been to. Wow, welcome. Raise your hand if you have been to about five CSIS public events before. How about 10? How about 20? All right, our AV team in the back. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. So this, morning, this morning's event is part of a speaking series that we um, host jointly with the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organizations, North America Liaison Office, along with the CSIS Global Food Security Project. Over the years, we have convened uh, both public and private events on topics ranging from biodiversity to blockchain, from migration to women's empowerment. And I have to say I'm super excited about today's topic because honestly I've been wanting to do something on food loss and waste for some time. So um, it works out quite nicely that the topic of uh, the FAO's latest state of food and agriculture report, we hope you got a copy coming in. If not, let us know, we'll make sure you get one. But great that the copy, I mean that the topic of this year's report is on food loss and waste. It is a vast problem with what I would say is a lot of simple solutions, but one that um, is not talked about enough. Uh, I'd like to now welcome my friend, my colleague, Vimlinda Sharon, who's the director here of the FAO, FAO office to share some remarks and he'll introduce our first speaker. Vimlinda? Morning. Uh, thank you, Kimberly. And thank you, a big thank you to CSIS uh, for partnering us for the last three years and hosting these events. Uh, also, a big thank you to the Danish Embassy and Ambassador Wisberg, who is here with us today. We established a relationship with the Danish Embassy when we, ha we met uh, the previous Ambassador, Ambassador Lose. And we did some events around food loss and waste, and your kind presence here today is definitely cementing and taking that uh, relationship further. So thank you very much for being here. Uh, we also welcome and thank all the panelists who are with us. So you'll be hearing through them the country stories. So we have uh, uh, Lana Sarez from, we'll give you the American side of the story, while you have uh, Sylvain from, uh, from uh, France who will tell you how the voluntary aspect compares with the legal aspects of uh, putting out a legislation for food law, which France has done. And to mix and match all of those, we have uh, Esben from the World WRI to give a researched academic perspective to the whole thing. It's, it's an interesting uh, topic for us because uh, food loss and waste is something which by our gut, by the understanding of English language, we all think we know about it. But when you read the report, you'll understand that there's a very nuanced aspect to food loss and waste also, because not everything that you do to reduce food loss and waste actually has, there are trade-offs between the various objectives that you're trying to achieve. So the report actually lays out for you how we are going ahead with meeting the uh, SDG uh, target 12.3, 
And to measure that, you have now two indices coming forward, the food loss index, which is index, which is uh, being prepared and done by FAO, and the food waste, which is being done by UNEP. This report, for the first time, comes out with a figure of 14% uh, on the food loss side. We are still awaiting figure from UNEP as to what figure they come out with on the food waste side. Uh, three things which uh, the report does tell us to take a look at and understand is how much, where, and why is food loss happening? So we have to understand in the food chain where it's happening, geographically where it's happening, what commodities are more susceptible, what are less susceptible, why is it happening? But we also need to be clear on what we are aiming at, the objective which we want to achieve through food, reducing food loss and waste. Is it just food security? Is it the environmental impact? Is it the economic impact? So those aspects need to be clear because only based on that can policy prescriptions come forth. The third aspect which it tries to uh, talk about is how do the measures that we take, how does that impact the objective that we are trying to achieve? So uh, these are three important aspects of food loss and waste which we uh, really need to understand. The report uh, does uh, build an incremental argument. It talks about the business sense of the whole thing where a private sector, if given enough information and if, if given enough incentives, will try and reduce food loss and waste so that their profit margins or their incomes increase. But then it goes on to talk about externalities where there's an economic argument which is more than just individual, it's a society, and how they are societal gains, whether it be economic advancement, whether it be food loss, global food security and nutrition security, or whether it be the environmental aspect that we are talking about. So these are equally important. It's going to be a very interesting uh, uh, one hour, one and a half hours. Uh, like every economic theory and every economic research, there are obviously caveats and, caveats and uh, assumptions in this report. So I, I, I urge you to really read the report in full and not just walk away with the figure of 14% in your mind. You must understand how that figure is coming, what are the assumptions, what are the caveats which the report does lay out. I don't think there could be anybody better than Maximo himself, the lead technical hand who has prepared this. Under his guidance, this report has been prepared to take us through the findings of the report and make us understand how the report has been developed. Maximo, for those of you who do not know him, most of Washington does know him, but those of you who do not know him, is now with FAO. He's our ADG, Assistant Director General, looking at EAS, the economic uh, aspects of, also described now by our uh, FAO new DG as the Chief Economist for FAO. Before joining uh, FAO, Maximo was the uh, ED at World Bank uh, representing Peru and a host of other countries, and before that he's also worked with uh, IFPRI. Uh, his uh, passion, I'm told, is poverty, poverty alleviation, and also understanding uh, policies, uh, especially in the institutional, infrastructural, and technological part which can alleviate poverty around the globe. So uh, without uh, further ado, let me welcome Maximo to take us through the findings of this report. Thank you. Let me, okay, we are. 
Okay, thank you very much for, for the kind uh, invitation. Thank you very much for CSIs for organizing this meeting and to Ambassador for being here and for all of you to, to be here today. Uh, this is a very important report for, for FAO. Uh, and let me, let me start before I say too much about the report uh, with a little video that we prefer. This little video, we discuss a lot uh, uh, the importance of it and, and why we do it with kids. Uh, it's because we know there has been some evidence now that kids could influence the behavior of parents. And this video right in this moment is being mainstream in many of the schools in the world. Uh, we are doing it in several languages. And we also have developed a series of videos of youth uh, where they explain the problem by itself. Uh, so again, FAO is trying to join all the efforts that are already existing in trying to tackle this issue. Now, what is this report uh, and why it's bringing up? In 2011, FAO raised the awareness uh, of food loss and waste uh, by producing the number of one-third that everybody knows and that really creates significant awareness of the importance of what is happening uh, in terms of food loss and waste. Uh, since then, the issue has gained an increased uh, attention and also became part of the SDGs. It's the SDG target 12.3, uh, which is calling for food loss and waste reduction, and it has a specific target for waste. In losses, it just referred to the re reduction of losses. But now that we know of the importance of food loss and waste, uh, what we wanted to understand is a little bit more about the details of what that third meant uh, and how we can decompose it, and why it's so important to decompose it in these two indicators. So, Today we are talking of an indicator of food loss index, an indicator of food waste index. Uh, it's really important because we need to target uh, how to resolve the problem and the players and the stakeholders in each of the different elements of the food loss and of the food waste are different. And we need to find and try to understand what is behind it and where are the hot spots where we can reduce food losses. So what this report tries to do is try to understand all that and trying to give more detail on the information. So, as a result of that, we will have a new number, of course, for the food loss index, and I hope soon, with the support of UNEP, we will have the number for the food uh, waste uh, indicator, waste index that we are calling today. But the goal is to try to find ways to better achieve SDG target 12.3, and that's where we are aiming 
uh, towards the achievement of this report. Now, what are we bringing in terms of the, of the definition uh, of losses, which is extremely important? Uh, we did, um, together with other colleagues of, of CERES uh, 2030 initiative, I was involved in a review of around 7,000 papers on the topic of food loss and waste. That's the advantage of having machine learning and artificial intelligence. You can do that faster today. Uh, and what we found is that in a significant amount of these papers, the definition was completely different. So everybody was using his own definition of what losses meant and what even they confuse a lot, waste and losses. So what this report is trying to do is to come with a very clear definition. And the definition for food loss is basically from the post-harvest up to the wholesale included, so before the retail. So from post-harvest up to the wholesale included before the retail. And food waste is from the retail up to the consumer. UNEP will work on the food waste index. We are working on the food loss index. Now, given that we capture from the post-harvest to the wholesale market, there is a lot of spots in the value chain that we need to look at. Even the post-harvest result could be a consequence of what is happening in the pre-harvest and even in the production side. And that's something also that FAO is looking very carefully. So what we want to bring now is this clear definition that will help us to better understand uh, the problem. And that allows us to come with a very concrete, a concrete number and allow us to understand where the problems are. Why? Because it's central that we all are benchmarking a common definition. If not, many of the studies don't say the same thing. And you will see later on in my presentation how the range of the measurements of losses and waste vary across country and commodity. Even within the same region, the same country, and the same commodity, you will have an enormous variance of what it has been measured. And when you look at the papers and you try to understand why the differences, it's basically because of the definition. So our urge, uh, and this is consistent with WRI, what they have been doing. Uh, they have a huge initiative on this topic too. So our, our goal here, together with our partners in this report, is to try to come up with clarity of what we mean by food losses, okay? So that from now onwards, when we refer to it, we are very, very strange in, 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 in assessing the importance of the definition so that we have a common indicator and that which will allow us to track what is the evolution and the performance of this indicator over time. Now, what is the number? So the number that, that we have today under the food loss is around 14.40%. This is 13.8% to be exact but we mentioned 14%. Now, this number will vary substantially region by region, uh, but essentially, uh, at the regional level, we will have estimates, as you can see here, for the case of, of Central Asia, uh, the numbers uh, could, be, could be better, but for the case of Sub-Saharan Africa, it's also over the 13.8%. And also, we have an issue on North America and Europe, which is mostly because of Eastern Europe, uh, and, and especially most on the sides of West. Now, this is what we are trying to, to bring up as the, as the correct number to be used from now onward. So we need to be careful that the, the number will vary at the sub-regional level, and now we know exactly how this is going to happen. And I will show you at the end where we are trying to bring this data available to everybody, which is a new change in FAO that now everything we do will have the data in a public domain so that everybody can look at it and can replicate what we are doing and can understand us, as it was mentioned before, what are the limitations. And, and there, from there, we can even keep improving and keep moving it up. Now, also, if we look at the different commodities, uh, the, the, the variation of the index will also change. Uh, and what we are trying to do here uh, is basically to look at the, at the range uh, of the food loss and waste uh, and the, at the wholesale and retail. And here we combine both because we need to come up also with this aggregate indicator based on the literature review. So what we are doing here is taking advantage of this enormous review and trying to figure out what are the different levels that we find at the different types of commodities. So you have cereals and pulses, and then you have also fruits and, and vegetables as an example. The vertical bar that you see there is basically the median. 
the median of the indicator for the different types of commodities for the different regions. So uh, the orange there, the lighter one is the Central Asia. Uh, then you have the red one, which is Eastern and Southern and Southern Eastern Africa, Asia, Northern America, and Europe, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, this is the median, no? so the median of the distribution. But when we keep looking at it, and we keep to look at the top and bottom quartiles, the top 25 and the bottom 25, look at the spread that we have in the number. Even if we look at the variance, look at the variance that we have, for example, for Sub-Saharan Africa, for the case of fruits and vegetables. So that's exactly the point I was referring before. This is based on the literature. This is not the number of the 13.8. This is based on what we have as an evidence in the literature in all these papers that we have looked at, um, and what is the range that we are observing in terms of food loss uh, and waste in, in the market. So it's very important, again, as I mentioned before, to find ways in which we reduce this amount of um, uh, indicators, because most of them, this huge variance is explained because of this wrong def different definition in each of the different ways it was measured in the past. Now, why is this so, so important and why we want to, to, to work and, and to put a lot of emphasis from now onwards? Of course, there is a lot of effort already happening uh, because it could help to improve food security and nutrition. So we need to find how, especially at the producer side, we can improve and reduce the presence of food loss. It reduces natural resource use, water, land, but also emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. And it could also improve productivity and economic growth. Because if we are able to produce more efficiently, of course, we were able to have more labor available to do other activities. And these are linked directly to many SDGs uh, around the board. Now, wh why is these three dimensions uh, so central? These are exactly the dimensions of the food system approach. Because it's not only increasing productivity or reducing loss to have more food available, it's also to be more sustainable in terms of natural resource use, and it's also to be more sustainable in terms of reduction of emissions. Because once a commodity has arrived, a food commodity, the market, there is an enormous amount of emissions that were already done that we are going to lose if we don't use that food properly. And that's where we need to, 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 to be careful. Now, one of the differences with the previous definition, the, the one that was one-third, is that the one-third definition assumed that all the food that was used for other, like, for example, for seeds or for feedstock, were losses. And we believe that was wrong because it's really food available which is being used for other processes. So that is no longer considered as a food loss. And that could explain a little bit the difference between what we had before in terms of the food loss. So we have been very careful in the report, you will, you will look at it carefully, uh, to try to, to explain exactly what are the differences between how it was previously measured and how we are uh, currently measured. Also, in this new uh, way of measuring food losses, we are including the value of food, which is really important. Staples, basic staples are different to fruits and vegetables. They have different values, and that's what we need to incorporate in the, in the capture of that. So we are also including the concept of quality of food through the mechanisms of their values and through the weights we're putting. Now, what is the report trying to bring? Uh, uh, and I'm sorry that the colors don't look too much, but the bottom arrows are orange, and the top arrows are uh, dark red. So basically, what we refer in, in the bottom arrows is that demand shrinks and production falls, income is affected. So, and in the red arrows, what we are saying is lower prices, more disposable food followers. So if I am able to touch uh, food losses at the beginning of the value chain, okay, that will benefit the producers. It will use us, allow us to use better the natural resources. And then it will move up in the value chain. So the earlier I go in the value chain, the better it is for food security issues, because it will allow more availability of food, it will allow better prices, lower prices, of course, for consumers, but it will allow producers to be able to do substitution effects and to find other ways to do activities. 
But if I just reduce food losses at the end of the value chain, that will shrink the demand, and that will, for sure, affect the producers, because I will have an excess surplus at the demand side. So the price will go down, and that will affect the whole value chain backwards, and don't give too much choice to the producers. So I need to be careful uh, on what I do and how it will impact food security and nutrition. So, for example, in countries where I am more food insecure, what I would like is to have interventions at the beginning of the value chain, because that's where I will increase the availability of food to farmers and to, and to, and to consumers that will allow us to have a, a better response. But when I am at the end of the value chain, like in developed countries, my goal is basically to reduce food waste, because that's where I will get a bigger impact in terms of reduction of emissions, for example. Because all that commodity that moves across the value chain already has accumulated this level of emissions that I want to avoid uh, losing, because it's already an investment. So this is very important to understand that the policy that I want to tackle is different depending where I am in the value chain. And the results will be different, and the effects will be different. That's very important. And understanding the hotspots and where the losses are occurring mostly will help us enormously to target the interventions and to be able to move forward on this. And we are working also with the World Bank and others, uh, with IFPRI, to try to, to find ways in which we can tackle this in the best possible ways and with WRI. But that's essential to understand where the losses are occurring and what will be the, the different impacts. And let me give you a, a very simple example. If I am a farmer, okay, and that's the, the macroeconomic approach, the individual approach, here I have farmers, and these farmers are doing an investment to reduce losses. The reason why they were having losses in maize was because aflatoxins. Okay? So this is a fungus that we know creates cancer to the liver, and also we have some evidence that it affects stunting. So you are producing maize, all of you produce maize. They decided to do an investment as a small farmers and to reduce the presence of aflatoxins. And the way to do it is basically to dry properly the maize and to store it properly. But to be able to store it properly, you need to dry it at a certain level of humidity. If you don't put that level of humidity, it can even be worse when you put it in the, in the hermetic plastic bags, for example. On this side, I have the same farmers, and they don't do it. Okay? So you invest your money, your little capital, because you were told by FAO and the World Bank and everybody else, do this investment, do this change, and you guys said, no, we don't believe these guys. And then I am the market, and you come to sell it to me. And I don't differentiate the price between aflatoxin-free maize and regular maize. So then what you do next? You throw me rocks and you throw me out of the town because nothing happened. So how I can force you to change your policy to create this investment to reduce losses if the market is not recognizing in their standards what is aflatoxin-free and what is made with aflatoxin? So this brings up the point that the, the, the individual effect is very important and not necessarily consistent with the aggregate effect. So this idea of the invisible hand doesn't work too well. Because the invisible hand is saying that if everybody at the individual level optimizes, then it should get an optimal at the, at the aggregate level. But if the policies are not working properly, and we are not giving the standards in the market and the price premium for the effort you are going, then you won't up implement the policy. And that's what we try to do now. We try to understand the whole value chain and what is need to be done to be able to achieve these results. And the same applies when we look at the reductions, as I was mentioning before. This is basically showing, for the different regions, what will be the reduction uh, in the case of, of emissions. Where, depending where I do the reduction in losses. And as I was referring before, the biggest impact will be at the end of the value chain. That's clear at the consumption part, at the, what we call the waste part. Because all these commodities has accumulated a set of emissions across the value chain that I'm going to lose if I waste them and I don't use them properly. So that's very important to, to be able to, to understand and to be able to, to take into account when we do these policies. So the report puts a lot of emphasis uh, in these types of, of different interventions. Again. Uh, the dark red ones are environmental sustainability 
and the orange are food security and nutrition objectives. On the dark ones, which are at the top, basically what we are saying is that we will gain more in terms of policy, in terms of reduction of emissions, plastic reduction, if we do the interventions at the end of the supply chain at the wayside. But we will gain more in terms of increasing water quality and, redu and what, uh, reduce water scarcity and preserving land if we do it at the beginning of the value chain. And then, of course, that will create more income and will allow farmers to make different choices. But if we do it at the end, that could affect the prices of the will of course benefit the consumers through prices, but could affect the producers because of the reduction in prices. But I could also improve the quality of nutritional content at the end. So how I design my policy objectives and how I combine them is very important. Now, again, one thing is to think on today what is happening, and this is what this is reflecting, is a static view of where I'm going to reduce the losses. But for sure, if I want to avoid problems in the future, I have to look at the whole value chain. No? What I want is to avoid products moving to the end that won't be consumed and therefore reduce the, the emissions that I'm going to do. So it's very important to understand what policy target you have and where you need to do it in the value chain to be able to achieve the results that we want to achieve. Now, FAO uh, at this point has generated these improved estimates on food loss. And there is a portal that I will give you the link at the end that shows exactly uh, all the information that we have collected. You can look country, commodity, you can do all the sums you want to, to understand the data that we are handling at this point. We are doing a huge effort to improve the way data is collected. There is a huge still data gap. And you know, people say, okay, but that's very costly. Sure, but in this case, it's very, very important to understand where the losses occur. So we are working with all our country partners to deploy the best possible data collection process that will allow us to identify the hotspots, and we are already piloting that. Uh, we are working with several partners on this. This is not FAO alone. We are creating a coalition so that the data is collected not only through the public sector, but also through the private sector, uh, but with very clear standards, a very con consistent definition, as I explained before. And finally, uh, FAO will assist countries to identify these critical losses points, and we try to bring private sector also to be able to minimize those uh, critical losses points. We think it's essential for us to take action. We want to comply with the SDGs. And what we are doing uh, is, as I told you, all the data is available in that website. Uh, I don't want to make the click because it will take longer, but you can click into it uh, and you will see all the data available that we have. Our job right now is to change the way uh, we act to be more effective. We have an instrument, we have an index now, a clear index with a clear definition. We will be able to track over time. Every time we will keep improving in the quality of the information in that indicator of losses. UNEP will focus on the waste indicator, but that will allow us to be able to track carefully the performance of all the different interventions that are being happening today in terms of reduction of losses. So we will deploy a portal by countries. We are starting with 53 countries. We will be tracking exactly what is the performance of the evolution of the food loss index every year indicator so that we can assess how things are going at the aggregate level on the different interventions and policies around the world. So we hope that this could be useful. This could bring some accountability, not only to FAO, but to all the players. And we hope that this will help us to create a big change in terms of access uh, of reduction losses and, of course, waste. Uh, but doing correct policies at the correct point in the value chain. Again, we need to be careful. We don't want to affect the farmers if the policy is not correct, like in the case of maize, that the standards are being recognized and they get a premium for the effort they are doing. If we don't do that properly, then we are basically not resolving the problem sustainable. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much, Maximo. Wow, we got a packed house. This is great. Uh, it's now my pleasure to introduce the first female ambassador of Denmark to the United States, Ambassador Lone Wisborg. She has 25 years of experience with the Danish Foreign Service, and this is her fourth diplomatic posting. Um, here at CSIS, um, our, particularly our project on prosperity and development has had a long-standing relationship with the Danish government. But today, I'm, I'm very pleased to announce that the CSIS Global Food Security Project is also partnering with the Danish Embassy. We're going to be looking at the issue of antimicrobial resistance, something we've also looked at with the FAO partnership. Um, so more on that in 2020. Um, Ambassador, this summer, I had the honor of visiting Denmark for the first time. I moderated the World Food Summit there. It it was a, an event organized by the Danish government. It had about 250 people from over, I think, 44 countries. And the issues that we looked at during that summit were food safety and security, better health and diets, as well as improved resource efficiency. So you can bet that food loss and waste was a big part of those conversations. And I have to say, throughout the event, I was, I was honestly impressed and really could see uh, with firsthand that the Danish has really committed to a more sustainable food system. Um, for a long time, Denmark has been a global leader on these issues, including on climate change. In fact, and I'm sure she'll probably talk about this, they have some of the most ambitious greenhouse gas emission reduction goals in the world. They've also integrated about 50% of their renewables in their energy systems. Um, and I don't want to, again, say too much. She'll probably cover this. But in terms of food loss and waste, um, they've had a remarkable reduction, about 25% over the last five years. And they actively work on these issues and fund projects and think Think about how to conduct campaigns to educate their consumers. So we here in the United States, we have a lot to learn from Denmark. So please welcome me and it, welcome, sorry, not welcome me, please join me in welcoming the Ambassador Wisborg. Thank you. Thank you, Kimberly, and thank you for your kind words about Denmark. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, um, today we face a global uh, paradox. Our planet holds enough food uh, to feed every single uh, human in the world today, uh, but the food is not evenly distributed. Uh, while countries like my own, uh, Denmark, have uh, plenty of food, other countries suffer from hunger and uh, malnutrition. We produce and consume food like never before, um, yet more than one third of food produced today is lost or wasted or <laughs> throughout the whole supply chain, from initial agricultural production down to final household consumption. And furthermore, we have a growing world population that is expected to reach nearly 10 billion by 2050. This will require a 60% increase in global food production to feed everyone. And we must do so while safeguarding our natural resources and limiting the environmental impacts. So we need to enhance basically the understanding and value of food. And we need to work together um, across sectors and across, across geographical borders. It has become a matter of the global climate of, and hunger and malnutrition. But before I continue, I would like to thank CSIS and FAO 
for inviting me to speak uh, on, on this important issue and, uh, and for the work you do uh, related to this issue. Uh, it's an honor to be in your company, and I hope our partnership will continue uh, going on forward. I would like also to make a few remarks on FAO's very interesting new report. Um, I mean, um, Maximo said a, a number of issues, but I think you know um, they're worthwhile repeated uh, some of the takeaways. As you said, Maxwell, the report puts forward two separate SDG uh, indicators, the food loss index and, uh, and the food waste index that will allow for more precise measures of how much food is lost at the different stages of the supply chain. And I think one of my most important takeaways from the report is exactly that food waste and food losses vary considerably from one country to another within the same commodity groups and supply chain stages. Also, that actions to combat uh, food loss and waste can have varying effects on food security and nutrition, as well as on the environment. Um, thus, to reduce food loss uh, and waste, we need to know where it occurs and where interventions will have the biggest uh, impact. As you said, Maximo, low-income countries will likely focus on improving food security and nutrition, in addition to sustainable management of land and water resources. This calls for a focus on reducing food loss and waste early in the supply chain, whereas high-income countries with low levels of food insecurity will likely place the emphasis on environmental objectives, in particular uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and this calls for interventions later uh, in the supply chain. The linkages between food loss and waste, on the one hand, and food security and environmental impacts, on the other hand, are complex and need to be fully understood. In Denmark, the food waste journey dates back to about 2006 uh, and was initiated actually by the Danish Agriculture and Food Council, together with the civil society activist uh, Selina Juhl, uh, with her Stop Wasting Food uh, movement. Today, reducing food waste has really become a national priority that involves all of society. Uh, in the Danish model, public-private partnerships and cross-sectoral cooperation are key. Um, the new Danish government has pledged to reduce uh, Denmark's CO2 emissions uh, by 70% uh, in 2030. This is a very ambitious uh, target that requires that working together across sectors and disciplines. And reducing our uh, carbon footprint related to food production, consumption, transportation, loss and waste are central keys to uh, completing, so completing this uh, challenge. Furthermore, I'm very proud to, uh, to say that the Danish food and agriculture sector earlier this year declared that it wants, to be the Danish, it wants the Danish food industry to be climate neutral by 2050. And to, to, to achieve this uh, goal, we will need universities with their knowledge, uh, the state with its resources, and farmers with, with their adaptability uh, and, and know-how. I would like just to highlight uh, a few Danish initiatives on this topic. Uh, at the international uh, level, Kimberly, you mentioned our annual World Food Summit uh, in Copenhagen. This is a central forum for discussing food challenges uh, of global relevance and, and you know, for inspiring each other. Uh, it's a place where actions can involve uh, and take place. At this forum, um, we have international uh, 
political decision makers, leaders of the industry, experts, gastronomy frontrunners to meet to develop partnerships and solutions that can be turned into international, national, and local action. And as you said, Kimberly, the summit this year focused on three different themes, food waste, better information on healthy eating, and food safety. And all of these are relevant when we discuss uh, how we can secure efficient, sufficient, safe, and nutritious food for, for the generations to come. At the European level, um, Denmark has for many years advocated a strong EU focus uh, on reducing food waste. Um, and, and we have, you know, we seek to inspire ambitious actions to, to combat so to combat the challenges. We also play an active uh, part in the European Commission's expert group on uh, on food loss and and waste. The European Commission issued new uh, EU guidelines on food donation in 2017, and we also played a very active role in that process. The Danish government has also launched a number of national initiatives. I'll not go through all of them, but, uh, but I'd like to mention a few. Uh, and one um, very promising initiative is a task force of consultants uh, called Food Waste Hunters. Uh, they help uh, commercial kitchens uh, come up with ideas of how to reduce their food waste. And the results so far is really remarkable. There's been an average of 42% reduction in food waste in these particular kitchens. We've also established a think tank uh, to combat food loss and waste in Denmark and globally. Uh, the mission is to unite efforts and, and knowledge and to create new initiatives and come up with best practices. And actually, this think tank is, uh, is a great example of this uh, public-private partnership I talked about, where we have representatives from the entire food chain, you know, from farm to fork, as well as uh, public authorities and the research community. They are all represented in the think tank. Moreover, we have seen many Danish companies uh, in the food sector committing to uh, reducing food loss and waste at home and abroad. Um, we, similar to other countries, we have initiatives such as platforms where people can buy surplus uh, unsold food from restaurants, cafes, supermarkets, bakery, etc. that otherwise would have been thrown up. There's, for instance, uh, an app called Too Good To, to Go that I used to uh, use when I, when I lived in Denmark. Um, we have supermarkets uh, selling ugly produ produce at, at a discounted price. Um, we are changing date marking on food products from best before to often good after. Uh, <laughs> and we also have companies working on, for instance, extending shelf life of yogurt with natural uh, food ingredients such as enzymes and cultures. So there's really a lot, uh, a lot that can be done. I would like to finally also mention the civil society movement, Stop Wasting Food, that collaborates collaborates with Her Royal Highness Princess Marie of Denmark to teach school children about uh, food waste. We cannot start too early with this. It's easy to speak about food loss and waste and climate change. Uh, it's a lot harder to actually do uh, something about it. But as they say, uh, you know, when nothing is certain, anything is possible. So let's just make it possible and work together to solve this problem across borders, across oceans, and across cultures. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much, Ambassador. You know, I have to tell you a story. Actually, before we get started, those standing at the back, feel free to come on to the front. We have several chairs here in the front row, as well as we don't need our chairs because we're on the stage. So come on up and feel free to take a seat. Um, at the World Food Summit that both the Ambassador and I mentioned in Copenhagen, they all of the food that was served was mostly vegan, actually, um, sort of in line with the theme. And at the big fancy dinner, I was at the big fancy VIP table, and and at my table was, um, I, I don't know if he was the deputy minister or the ag minister, doesn't matter, but from a representative from South Africa, from Kenya, and from, I think, El Salvador. And the dinner was vegan. And they literally kept saying, where's the meat? When's the meat coming? And they were taking pictures. And it really created a great conversation about behavior change and thinking through the food and the type of food that we eat and how that relates to um, our environment, but, but how change can sometimes be difficult, but it was a great event. So um, for our panel, I'm actually not going to do long introductions because Vilmunda already mentioned who was on the panel. For those that are that are here in person, you have all of these wonderful people's bios in your hands for the handout. So we're going to jump right into the conversation. And I actually want to start with you, um, Sylvan, because I'm curious, you know, the ambassador talked about how I had no idea a think tank was created to deal with this issue, but that food loss and waste is a national priority of Denmark, which I just think is remarkable. So talk to us from the French perspective. Um, how do you look at this um, from the French government, and what are some of the things that you are doing to tackle this in your country? I think food waste is something very important in a lot of countries in the European Union. It's very important in Denmark that quite always on environmental issues is really pushing very soon uh, on the issues. Maybe for us it was mm, 2009 we really started, but I would say that it's also a national priority in, uh, in our country. We, we have national strategy, we have implemented, because we are French, laws about it. We love laws, you know. Um, <laughs> I would say that from, from the consumer point of view, uh, food waste is really something that's coming uh, for two issues. The first one is environmental. It was said uh, all by, by the FAO and by, by Denmark. The other one is social because we have food waste and we still have food insecurity even in countries like uh, in Western uh, European countries like France. So it's very difficult to have both people that suffer from hunger and uh, food that goes to, 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 to the trash. So a lot of we've got a lot of private uh, initiative, of course, uh, including with the motors on food waste that were the food charities, that really, really put a lot of emphasis uh, on that. Uh, and regarding uh, regarding public intervention, uh, the first thing we, we we made was making a strategy, trying to have all stakeholders together. I think that's one of the major role of a, of a public authorities to be sure that everybody is on board, the charities, the companies, the farmers uh, and farmers association that were quite also pushy on that uh, on that topic. Well, I can speak a lot about of laws if you want uh, in the details, but just to say what we wanted to do is trying to have just a few obligation, mainly on transparency, mainly of best undertaking uh, things to be sure that the companies, the food, uh, the groceries, 
the institutional catering was just going on board, and I think that's what's going on now. From a legal perspective or a public policy perspective, is there one change that you have seen has made the greatest difference? Yes, I think just the idea it was uh, two years ago, we made uh, for uh, supermarkets uh, the obligation to come up with a contract with food charities. You, if, you are, uh, if you are a supermarket, we saw and they, we made a ban, but it's difficult to implement, but a ban, you are not allowed to throw away edible food, you are not allowed to alter edible food when you throw it away. That's the first idea. And the second was you come up with an agreement with a food charity. We don't oblige you to have an actual agreement with a food charity, but try. And this obligation to try really change the mindset, including because Everybody was on board on that topic. It was bipartisan, and it was more than bipartisan. Was every we've got more than two parties. It's more difficult for us. But I think everybody, I think really everybody was on board, and the companies also were on board because it's also a very good thing for them to be able to show that they are making efforts uh, to combat food wastes. It's good for for them first because uh, it can also be economically interesting and it's good in a, in a matter of communication because the consumer is really aware about that. Hard to enforce though too, right? I mean in the sense of, I'm gonna move on, but just hard to enforce of telling grocery stores, don't throw it away, but it's hard to, because you're not gonna be in the back seeing when they throw food away, right? Or maybe you are. Uh, no, we don't have one controller in every supermarket. We are not that, but we've got a lot of uh, controls on food safety. Uh, in and that, when you are controlling your food safety, you just just look at what's done and uh, and the, the procedure for for throwing away food, and then you can you can really so show that. And just the publicity because. A lot of people uh, look at the beans of their neighbors, uh, so it it's also can be a way to be sure, uh, regard, including with the food charities, that we've got peer pressure, I would say. That's great. Thanks. Let's move on to Lana. Talk to us about the U.S. approach. I mean, we have a bit more of a focus on voluntary measures, so talk about some of the things that you work on in, on EPA related to this, and what are some of the benefits and challenges of the U.S. approach versus the French approach, voluntary versus legal? Sure. Thank you. Um, in the U.S., we do concentrate on the voluntary incentive-based approaches. Um, last year, we worked with our other agencies, not only the Environmental Protection Agency, but the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Food and Drug um, Administration, and we launched an initiative, the Winning on Reducing Food Waste Initiative, um, and we agreed to work together. And then earlier this year, in April, we launched a uh, national strategy under that initiative. Um, so we all agreed to work together uh, voluntarily, and we also work with a lot of businesses and organizations. At EPA, we work with our uh, over 1,000 businesses and organizations under our Food Recovery Challenge. Um, and in 2017, over 648,000 tons of food was diverted through the initiatives of all of these participants and endorsers of this voluntary effort. 
uh, we see them implement a number of different strategies um, through our, our food recovery hierarchy, which is focusing on prevention and then feeding people, industrial uses, uh, and then to composting with the least preferred method to manage food waste as landfilling. But we do see a lot of progress and uh, positive change with these voluntary initiatives um, and a lot of success. Uh, and we have a lot of best practices uh, posted on our website about all the different initiatives that all of these organizations and businesses have implemented. And we see the, those that have participated in our voluntary initiatives as examples to others that are in their sector. So that was a food recovery challenge, and we also have business leaders that have mirrored our national goal to reduce food loss and waste by 50% by the year 2030 as our U.S. Food Loss and Waste 2030 champions, and they have made that public commitment too. Uh, and again, these are leaders in businesses that are showing others in their own sector what can be done and uh, all of the successful practices that have worked for them, and that makes it even easier for others in the same sector to take those same steps and initiatives. Is there a particular business that is one of the greatest leaders or someone that we should sort of turn to as consumers that, uh, or maybe other private sector could, could emulate? I could never just pick just one. Business. You could say a couple. We have 25, 20, 30 champions that are all great examples and leaders. Um, from a variety of sectors in our food recovery challenge, we have hotels, we have venues, um, we have grocery stores that are all doing different things. Um, the easiest is to implement and start composting programs and then also donation programs working with local charities. Uh, the, and then the, the harder initiatives, the harder strategies to implement in these organizations and businesses is uh, doing the prevention strategies and looking at the back of the house and seeing where they can analyzing their waste uh, and seeing what kind of strategies they can do to really be successful in the, on the prevention side. Very good diplomatic answer, which will serve you for my next question, which is around <laughs> politics, of course. So, you know, in this current administration, um, it has not placed climate change as a high priority. So I have two questions around that. One is, you know, you worked for years in this, uh, under this, working in this field. So. Um, do you feel constrained at all in the current administration to create great policies? And then a second question, if you need to skip over that one, <laughs> is thinking through in the current um, you know, political climate and the presidential election coming up, climate change has become a huge focus. And of course, this connects very much to climate change. So do you think there might be an opening, um, depending on what happens next year, um, that perhaps we could get some even more stronger policies in place or have more public policy partnerships? I agree that there's a connection. I can only say that I have felt extremely supported in my work with sustainable management of food. Uh, not only do we have the national goal that we announced with uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and then more recently last year we announced this initiative with our other agencies, and then launching the interagency inter federal strategy, um, I've only felt supported in my work. Um, and I'm very inspired by all the great minds in this room and on this panel. And I'm, I'm also very motivated um, in my current position because I see that this is something that we can really work toward and see a lot of success uh, on an individual basis and um, at the federal and international levels. Yeah. 
It's going to take all of those levels, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially the individual. Espen, let's move to you. Um, you know, you, you were also a Danish government official, so um, the Danes are, are definitely a big player and, and play a big leadership role in this. But let's talk about the World Resources Institute. Um, tell me about some of the things that you're doing there. I, I know I'm quite familiar with your Global Commission on Adaptation, um, so talk about that and then sort of how you're looking at this topic at WRI. Well, first of all, thank you very much for hosting this today. Um, I think we need to take a step back and, and say that food waste and food loss <clears throat> isn't just a political or a social problem, but really a moral issue. And if we don't approach it with a moral approach, we really lose out a lot of the um, intent that can be when you change your habits. So if we don't get it into the moral sphere, it's difficult for us to really make the change that we need to see, just like when people stopped smoking and stuff like that. Um, when we look into uh, food waste and food loss from the perspective of the World Resources Institute, we push this agenda with numerous uh, associates around the world. We work with FAO, we work with the World Bank, we work with UN agencies, and we launched a report in 2018 on how you can create a sustainable food future, where a lot of the recommend, uh, recommendations are similar to what also has been issued today from the, the FAO. So when we look into food waste, <clears throat> we also see it as a climate issue. If food waste was a country, it would be the third largest emitter of CO2, which means that it is highly relevant not just to talk about this as a food issue, but very closely related to the climate issue as well. And I know that this is looked upon differently from areas in the world, but we look into a change in the world where we see how the climate affects the ability to produce food, especially in the sub-Saharan area and other places of vulnerability. So if we don't get this into the framework of climate adaptation and how we can use food and food production as a tool to both empower people in the developing countries, but also as a push from developed countries' side in their strategies, it is very difficult to see how we are going to feed the world in 2050 when we'll be 10 billion people in a sustainable way uh, without these major uh, difficulties that we are facing. This might sound like a simple question, but I want to make sure everyone in the audience gets it. You know, how does food, food waste become an emitter of greenhouse gas emissions? Can you tell us a little bit about that, if not Maximo can, but... Well, Maximo touched upon it in his presentation, that when you produce food, there's emissions related to it. It can from, be from <clears throat> just the change of land use. It can be from the use of nitrate. It can be from the, uh, for instance, rice production. So we have seen the rice industry earlier this year commit to reducing their food loss and food waste uh, to, in 2030, a whole coalition of the biggest rice producers. We see how beef production and milk production challenges our uh, emissions. It is not that beef isn't good or milk isn't good, that is, vulnerable, that is really important sources for nutrition, but it's a challenge when we do our food production. So that's why emissions are so closely related to, to food waste. Maximo, anything you want to add to that? No. Uh, Did he do okay? 
<laughs> no, I agree, of course. Uh, only I think it's important, uh, and you mentioned it, to be very careful that uh, that meat or milk creates uh, a bigger level of emissions doesn't mean that we shouldn't consume it. There are regions of the world that clearly need it because of the of the micronutrients behind, and and we need to make them have access to them affordable. The, the only point which is pretty complicated, at least in my view, is that many countries uh, which are very efficient in the way they produce cattle, for example, uh, are trying to comply with their commitments to to uh, to reduce level of emissions in the world, while other countries which produce today very inefficiently are not able to do it because they are not in the frontier of the technology. So the question there is why we don't have tradable emissions, for example. So if I have New Zealand reduction, reducing the level of cattle they produce to comply with the commitments for reduction of emissions, when New Zealand is producing in the most efficient way, why don't use those resources to improve the quality of production of meat in another country which is emitting a lot because of the way they are producing, and then trade those levels of emission? I think we need to find innovative ways to achieve the global target that we want relative than to think in silos by countries and by silo commitments mm -hmm. rather than allowing trades, which the Kyoto pro pro Protocol allow for that. So, Maximo, I want to turn back to the report. Um, so you talked about in your presentation uh, of, of kind of a new definition and also the challenge of collecting data. Um, but so often, many of us know when we talk about food loss and waste, we always talk about 30 percent, 30 percent, 30 percent. And now you're telling us, oh, maybe it's more like 14 percent. And so my question is, even if this is more accurate, do you worry that a lower number will make people less motivated to act? Yeah, not at all, because again, the, the one third is food loss and waste. The 30.8 percent or the 14 percent we refer is only food losses. Okay. Okay. Now, the waste could be even bigger. We don't know yet. We will we'll see. So, so you know, the third looks nice, uh, but the third was an aggregate number that doesn't allow you to to say where the problem is. The split between losses and waste will give us a lot of more information to be able to identify where the problem is and how to bring a solution. So we are not saying at all that it's lower or higher. What we are saying is now we know how we have a common definition that everybody should try to replicate. And that's a plea to everybody to use the same definition. Uh, the second thing is we will know where to target better because the players are different. In the waste, you have more the consumers and the retail stories. So you can put policies targeted to that. In the losses, you are more on the production, on the transportation, and the wholesale part, and the storage part. So we can now do policies more targeted to reduce the hotspots with a better definition by splitting and looking at the hotspots. But another not point we are saying that we are, we are succeeding and we are in a lower number. That, that's not the, the case. Thank you. That was the message I wanted to get across as well. Um, a question for all of the panelists. Um, the video was so fun at the beginning. Um, and it, how the video pointed out, you know, it's an issue with tools, it's an issue with storage, you know, all these sort of issues along along the chain that, that could be addressed. And also the ambassador mentioned, and I was going to as well, uh, the use of technology or apps, right? The Too Good To Go app and um, taking over Europe, but there's plenty of apps here in the United States as well that people are using to connect retailers um, with consumers in terms of, of food um, waste. Um, so my question to all of you, we'll start here and we'll go down, is is there, a, I'll just say a new technology or tool, which one do you, are you most excited about in this, um, in the, on this topic and which one do you think could really make a big difference that you're kind of keeping your eye on? Well, um, 
First, I think uh, maybe to combat food loss, but not only food loss, blockchain can be very interesting. Mm -hmm. To be to be to have better data yeah. also, and to be, be to be able to to go. And I think on the on the apps, I just quote. Which were the apps uh, in France? I, I left France two years ago, and I'm amazed at the explosion of apps uh, that exist between particulars. The last one I've seen, if you are going to if you are going to vacation and you've got some food in your in your in your fridge, you put that on the app, and then you can give the the food to to a neighbor or someone someone in the neighborhood. I found that quite interesting. Do you know the name of the app? Can't uh, find it. Okay. I've got it. Oh, find it. No, 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 no. Oh, I've, uh, we're gonna find it. Sorry. Thought you meant find it was the name of it, which would make sense, right? Find my food. I mean, you know. Um, okay. As you look at that, we'll move on. But when you find it, we'll haha, we'll come back. Okay. So, uh, Lana, what are some technologies that you're looking at? There are so many I am excited about, and every time I hear or, I, or we're approached by a, a new stakeholder that has the next best greatest thing, so it's hard to, it's, again, it's hard to pick just one. I really like the, the new apps and uh, resources that are connecting the potential access with the, with the potential um, recipient, so bringing people together, and there's a lot of local apps that are uh, springing up uh, in different cities or municipalities just to make the logistics easier because uh, normally food banks uh, wouldn't come to a after event that's at two o'clock in the morning for example to pick up one or two trays of uh, prepared but not served food but um, perhaps there are smaller groups out there that are willing to go and do pickup and really relieve some of that logistical stress so I think those are very exciting. And then on the national level, EPA has an excess food opportunities map. That's not, that's, uh, it's national, it's the whole United States. And it is, again, identifying on a map, a GIS map, uh, the potential excess with the potential recipient. So you can really drill down to the, it, uh, it's not available on your phone yet, but we can work on that. Um, but you can really drill down to the county level and you can see the available infrastructure and you can use that in all of your decision making. So we've done some uh, data driven workshops uh, where we've gone to the very local level and use that as a starting point to convene a number of appropriate stakeholders so they can start talking about what is available there, where are the gaps, uh, what could we use either a business or a recovery operation in a specific location. Mm -hmm. So those individual apps springing up to help make those connections and then our own national map uh, to help with logistics and infrastructure. That's great. Did you find it? Yes, but it's very French. It's called up, up food, but it's not uh, English up. It's when you hop oh, from hop, one hop. way, up, up food. <laughs> hop, hop food, that's so. cute. Um, I will say before we get to you, Espan, um, you know, when, when I look at food loss in ways, I'm looking at it usually from the, the developing world context, and I'm looking at usually how food is lost um, before it even makes, makes it to market. So when I think about what are the coolest technologies, I actually look back to, this was Tanzania 2011, um, where it was like, a, I 
gosh, we were using local materials to create like a, a cooling storage, like a cooling house. And it was chicken wire with um, uh, charcoals in the middle and you just put the food in this little hut. Um, but it created a cooling mechanism because they didn't have electricity. So they weren't able to have like a, a cool storage, um, but they were able to keep their fruits and vegetables in a place that was shaded, that was cool, that kept them um, you know, not, not wasting away literally before they made it to market. Espan? I think uh, Too Good To Go app is, the, is one of my favorite, but then at WRI we have developed a tool called the Office Food Waste Challenge. Um, we localized that we had a lot of food waste in our company uh, from um, receptions and conferences, but also staff food. So we developed a tool called the Office Food Waste Challenge where we have reduced our office food waste with 80%, 80 percent, eight zero. Uh, through the last year, and we have uh, the veteran co compost company come and pick up our um, leftovers, so it's composted. So to all of you, you should really go on to the office food waste uh, challenge uh, and take it there. There's a really good setup around it. And then my favorite tool, to be honest, is my shopping cart, because I think the most important tool to fight food waste is really uh, not to waste food, so you plan your uh, shopping uh, and you have a considerations when you buy your food. Uh, so the most important tool is really fight food waste with your shopping cart. That's awesome. Maximo, your favorite tool or technology? So, uh, up to now, most of them has been on food waste. No? You were the one that mentioned something on food loss. Uh, but let, let me become more on the, on the moralistic side. Uh, you know, we have 121 million people unnourished. Two billion people that don't eat the quality of food they are supposed to eat. So the thing is dramatic, okay? And we need to be very serious about this. And of course, we need to assume that we cannot reduce food losses to zero. Uh, that doesn't make any sense and it won't work because it's not economically suitable. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, technologies at the production side are in a pretty cheap, bad condition, especially for smallholders. So for example, the example I refer on, on maize, one of the major problems we found is drying technologies for smallholders. They don't exist. The ones that exist are pretty cost ineffective. And if you don't dry properly your maize, you will have significant amount of losses. So any, we are at a level that any technology that can help us <laughs> is useful. I, I wouldn't, so all the apps you are saying are great and we should keep using them, but we need to find other bigger solutions. If you go to the most high-tech uh, situation in agriculture where everything is used in a more efficient way is vertical farming and horizontal farming, especially horizontal farming on controlled environments. But that requires electricity, requires access to potable water, and requires especially high-tech human capital. But that's the one that is using the water in the most efficient way, the soils in the most efficient way, and is reducing losses at the production level up to the post-harvest to the maximum. But you cannot assume that that will happen in developing countries too quickly. So that's, that would be my choice in terms of technology. But, but again, I, I think it's important to understand that any app, for example, right now in many countries are not possible for one simple reason. Poor farmers don't know how to read and write. So. Uh, uh, forget about the connectivity, the electricity, that they assume that they can pay. They even don't know how to read and write. And the level of illiteracy is huge. So we need to find ways that will, will help to resolve these type of problems. Thank you, Maximo. Let's go ahead and turn to the audience. Raise your hand if you have a question. Um, we can go ahead and start here at the front with Dan. Um, and then um, back to Russell, you can take your hands down. Um, please stand and please give your name and affiliation. We'll do a couple at a time and you can either address your question, be brief to anyone on the panel or to all. Dan? Hi, my name is Dan Silverstein. I'm a private sector advisor. Mr. Correo, you started your presentation with a short film. 
was clearly designed for children, but it seemed to have wide application for anybody who would see it. In this context of talking about applications and tools, it seems to me like that could be a very powerful tool uh, that uh, emanates from the bottom up as opposed to the top down. What are you doing with this film? Where do we find it and who sees it? Thanks. Thanks, Dan. Um, to the woman right over here. Yes, go ahead. There's a microphone right behind you. Um, Alicia, if you can give it to Russ, who'll raise his hand. Yeah, right there. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, I'd like to do two questions. Thank you for this great panel. Um, the first one is, the one thing I haven't heard today is the capacity for reabsorption of CO2 with regenerative solutions that include food waste as part of composting and just sustainable farming. So if you could all talk a little bit about that, uh, carbon sequestration through reduce of food waste. And the second one I'm just curious to know is what have you personally done to reduce food waste in your own life? Uh, we are in a city where leaders are focusing on big changes changes abroad and everywhere in the world, but I personally focus on helping food waste reduction here with the DC Food Recovery Working Group and just at home. And it just seems to me that people are so busy to help outside, but that also keeps them to produce food waste in DC. So if you could just make a pledge or help everybody here and encourage them, what do you do to have a conversation started with your community? Do you give Christmas cards of the hierarchy pyramid of food waste reduction? or put it on your fridge. I'm not even kidding about this. What can we do to take our values that we leave uh, to the next level, which is creating this domino effect with the people around us? Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Russ, go ahead. See if I, oh, there it is on, what do you know? Uh, my name's Russ Webster, I'm chief of party for a USAID Feed the Future project called Business Drivers for Food Safety. Um, Maximo, I believe you started to refer to this uh, in your last comment, but I also wanted to emphasize that somewhere between production and, and consumption and the loss, there's also a great deal of foodborne disease. Uh, WHO estimates that about 600 million people a year fall ill from bad food, and about half a million people a year die from foodborne illness. Um, I was really happy to see this index because it's an index that really looks at, starts to look at the whole system. World Bank is starting to do its enabling the business of agriculture index, but it's really just about the production side. So I wanna just continue to encourage you to develop this index as a policy tool. But I wanted to ask a question related to policy. Um, I'm a firm believer that the private sector can find a way to solve some of this problem if we help them do that by making the right sorts of public investments. Oftentimes when we talk about an enabling environment, we're talking about the regulatory and policy environment, which is, a, which is critical, and standards that go along with food, food practices and food processing practices. But one of the shortfalls that we have is basic investment that is helpful for all rural development, and that's basically roads and energy and elect electrification. So I wanted to ask whether you have plans going forward to maybe track some of the correlations between improvements in the index and, and public investments that are really vital for giving the private sector the opportunity with transportation to markets and energy to do the work that they need to do. And going forward, if you have some ideas about how you might track that and use it as a tool when you're talking to governments in developing countries about their investment priorities. Thank you. 
Thanks, Russ. We'll go um, to our panelists and we'll come back to the audience. So we'll get to you, Joanna, and others. Actually, let's start with Maximo about the film and then any other points you want to answer and then we'll just come all the way down. Go ahead, Maximo. Okay, perfect. On the film, it's completely available. Uh, we want to translate to several languages. The whole concept of the film, uh, so there was a lot of discussion if we should do it because it looks kids, so, so not necessarily will influence policymakers. But the belief is that if you look at the messages, they're pretty solid. No? So, and we also want to change behavior through kids. Uh, and we know that that works. Uh, I have working a lot on that, and I know we have papers with RCTs and all things that we know that that works. The, the, the important thing is that we need to massively distribute it. Uh, and in, in Rome, we already have agreed with all the schools. In, we are trying to push in other European countries. We would love to, to push it in the schools in the US, because the advantage of doing it at the schools is that you have a huge impact, because it's cost-saving. Everybody's in one location. Mostly schools will have access to computers, especially in developed countries and in some many developing countries. So you can touch kids in a big amount, and then they will be your spillovers to, to, to adults. Not only to adults, but to kids, but also to adults through upward inter, intergenerations. So please send an email to us. The video is available in the website of FAO. But if you don't get it, our local office can give you the video. And, and if we need translations to other languages, we are more than happy to, to work on that. Then on the, on the question of uh, reabsorption and CO2, so there is a lot of work that we are doing on soil management uh, to be able to help that, uh, that level, forestry, of course. But then there are many other things uh, that FAO is working on, so I'm more than happy to, to link you with the people working on that. Uh, now, on our own life, so the video was one of the ideas that we have. We also have this sequence of videos of youth. If you look at my Twitter account, you will see all the, the youth videos, which has been also having a huge impact. Uh, and this is done for free. So we have a youth committee that we set up, and they do it for us. They basically take the content, and they try to work with it in the best way that is approachable. So any way that we can achieve this is more than, 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 than welcome. The food safety issue is central. Uh, I think it's, it's extremely important, because as you said, and we handle the Codex Alimentarius no, as part of, of one of the entities that we host at FAO. But, but it's essential because of foodborne diseases uh, and because of food uh, unsafety, you lose a lot of food also, like the aflatoxin example I was giving, and there are many others because of the quality of water and the waterborne diseases in the fruits and vegetables, for example. So, so I think that's something that we need to tackle. We are working very closely with WTO, especially on the trade part, uh, but we're also working in our own entities to try to find ways to keep improving on the, on the Codex Alimentarius and to try to bring also elements, all other elements linked to nutrition, for example, which is important. Now, on the private sector, that's really important for us. Uh, FAO now has a new initiative called Hand in Hand, uh, which is trying to target the least developed landlocked countries, least developed small islands, and uh, countries in food crisis, and countries which are uh, less developed large, but at the subnational level. That initiative is developing a platform, an online platform, that is going to track all the investments in roads, all the investments in energy and in ICTs. We have done a partnership with ITU to be able to deploy. So why is it so important? Because if I want to develop a value chain today in Uganda, for example, in Tanzania, and the roads is the problem, so it takes me three hours to move, including the, the, uh, the problems of uh, corruption, no? like stopovers, then that won't work in the short term. But if I know that MCC is building a road that will do that, like, for example, in northern El Salvador, you have an amazing highway that we need to use better uh, that was built by MCC. So if we know that the road is being built and will be ready, then we have time to deploy and, and then bring the system together, no? So because that will resolve a big problem that takes a huge investment. So we're trying for those countries, which are 53 right now, to try to let the countries know what is happening in their countries and so that they can coordinate complementarities of investment. And we hope just that information will help. It's amazing, but today you don't know over the space of the countries where the ODA is going and what interventions are happening. It's very difficult. So we're trying to, 
to do that, but that's, that's central to create the, 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 the needed complementarities. Uh, and we are also launching uh, together with the bank, uh, WRI, and Rabobank and the Netherlands, an initiative to do the risking of private investments in the hotspots uh, uh, of losses in, in, in IDA and less developed countries. So it's another way of de-risking the investment of private sector, but showing to them that it could be profitable because the institutionality is there, the conditions are there, and there's something to, to work out. And finally, the standards are central. We don't have standards in many countries, and the private sector don't find it attractive to be able to do the investment to improve the quality of the commodity, unless they have an international market already arranged. But that for local markets is really important. Yeah, um, at the World Resources Institute, we are a thousand employees that work with climate, with water, with food, with carbon sequestration, as you asked about. We have established the Food and Land Use Coalition, uh, where we look into how can you actually work with the carbon challenge within forest, within agroforest, within land use, and so forth. Uh, a part of the report I mentioned earlier on gives recommendations to how can you uh, work with this as a country and also globally. So uh, we have big programs within forest, within water, within uh, food and ag, where we push this agenda and also develop tools on it uh, in the sense that uh, can be applicable for countries, uh, but also for private sector. So that's a very important part of our work. Uh, and we believe in big coalitions around this. On the private front, well, uh, as uh, Kimberly mentioned, I was a cabinet minister in the Danish government and I took the initiative to the World Food Summit, so I'm glad that you had a, a pleasant stay there. Uh, I think as a cabinet minister, as a country, you can push an agenda. Uh, we did it with education material. We did it uh, with the World Food Summit. We launched grants that little companies could uh, apply for so they could develop technology to fight food waste. Uh, but we also had the moral discussion in our country uh, to push the Danes, uh, both at a national level but also at a European level, to uh, focus on this agenda. On my private private front, I follow the Hildur doctrine. And Hildur was my grandmother uh, that lived next to us on our farm. And she showcased us that you don't waste food when you cook. So I cook in my private home, I bake my bread, I don't eat processed food in general. Uh, I cook for homeless people on Wednesdays uh, where we give them the food with them home uh, when they leave the place. Uh, I try to be cautious about my shopping, not to buy too much, uh, and I really don't like uh, if I have to throw out food. Uh, so there's a lot of things you can do on, uh, on the private front. When it comes to the foodborne diseases and that setup that was asked about, uh, I like very much the approach of the World Bank and their climate smart agricultural investment plans. Uh, and we from World Resources Institute side, also with our report, wants to push that as well. Because looking into whole country setups where you look into infrastructure, digital, uh, digitalization, uh, use of big data, uh, use of all these technologies that have pushed farming in the developed countries so forward. We need to implement that at a developed, uh, uh, developing countryside uh, in sense of uh, full country plans, where you also look into the environmental impact, the use of medicine in husbandry production, uh, how you can create standards, as Maximum said, so you can actually export, for instance, into the European Union and follow those standards that are already there 
So have these full country plans with investments that can push forward. So we don't just have these small projects around the world in developing countries where it really doesn't scale anything. That's a very important approach uh, when you talk about food safety, food security, and delivering on sustainable food production. Anna, you have to mention what the hierarchy pyramid is that she talked about. I think you know a thing about that, yes? Our food recovery hierarchy, we don't have an image, but the upside down rainbow triangle, uh, looking at those, focusing on the strategies at the top, we usually say top of the hierarchy, the prevention, uh, and then feeding people, and then feeding animals, and then industrial uses. Uh, and of course, composting is a part of that hierarchy. And uh, our sustainable management of food team absolutely supports composting as one of those successful strategies, and one that we even though it's a little bit lower on the food recovery hierarchy, it's something that uh, is usually an, an easier strategy to implement, especially at a facility level or in your cafeteria or in your office workplace, to set up that collection of composting materials and then create that partnership um, with a local hauler to be able to take it and to produce and f feed those nutrients back into the soil through the process of composting. So we do have uh, some information on our website. We work with the U.S. Composting Council and a number of other partners and uh, local. Someone mentioned Veterans. Veterans Compost is one of our partners and stakeholders that we work with, too. Um, some of the other issues, personal practices. We have a great food team at EPA. Some of them are here with me. And I know, I mean, I take a lot of this work home with me and share it with my family sometimes a little more than they would like. But we also have um, a great team that is very passionate about this topic uh, that does support a lot of the initiatives like compost collection at our office workplace. Um, making sure that, I mean, we're environmental protection agency employees and you'd think that we'd all get it and it'd be easy for us to use this program, but it's even confusing for us. So we know that that outreach and communication is really important when we go outside of our own workplace and outside of this group who already knows a lot about this topic. Um, so we, we consider ourselves our own test case to see if that outreach and the signs are really communicating what needs to happen. Um, in my own personal kitchen, uh, I'm always bringing into the office and sharing with my family new recipes on how to use up my leftovers and different bits and ends that I would have normally thrown away a few years ago. But since we're working on this topic, I've had some more successful than other recipes uh, that I've shared for everyone to enjoy. Some enjoy more than others, and um, some might have ended up in the compost. But we have to try. Um, there was one I made last night that was not successful with the children, but we all have those recipes. Um, so again, I, I take these practices home with me because I do agree that this is a domino effect and we need to be the leaders and we need to be the examples and show everyone that this can work. It works for me. It's not too hard. Anyone can do it. And that's where all of my motivation comes from uh, when I go to work every day, that this is something we can really do something about on an individual and a larger organization and business level. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to add? 
Um, yes, a few things. Uh, maybe on the pyramid hierarchy, we do happen to have exactly the same. So I really think it's a good idea if even France and the US have the same opinion on something regarding food. It's really, really, really a good, a good idea. Um, no, just to say that um, I would say on regenerative agriculture and what we call more uh, agroecology in France, we, we do promote that. And I think food waste and food loss policy has to be coordinated with other environmental uh, policies because it's also a way to pursue, we, we talked about uh, greenhouse uh, gas emission and so on and so on. So there is an articulation to have, but what I would say the best food is the food that's not produced, that's not lost. And at the end, that's very, if we've got to throw it away, it's better to have it uh, as a compost th than uh, having it uh, in a bin or, or burnt. But that's the end of the process. We've got to, to, to work a lot on the, on, on the first three levels of the pyramid uh, hierarchy because it, they are environmentally most cost-effective. Most cost what was said that we will have food waste, we cannot target zero food waste, and so we need compost for that, and we need to be sure that we, we, we incentivize composting. Just to say uh, f about norms, food safety, uh, there are a lot of food, food safety norms, and uh, I think we are all agree that we are we don't want our food to poison us, so food safety is important. There are some norms, what I would call beauty norms, uh, like what's shown on the, on the fruits, uh, that are not food safety related. It's just something that's just, you want a very red and shiny apple, but if it's not that red and not that shiny, it can be, it can be as good. So we've got a program that call, we call in French, fruits moches, so ugly fruits, with a lot of things that uh, if you if you have an ugly if you eat or if you cook an ugly fruit, well, it it, it can be at least as good as a as a, as a wonderful uh, fruit. For my embassy, I want to say well, I would say uh, France has a lot of uh, of uh, of. Um, Interest and is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, of time and a lot of money invested on combating food loss and food waste and the two are really important. Uh, my embassy is trying to have a, a green standards uh, of uh, of, uh, of uh, to be a green embassy. So we are trying to do on uh, every every level. And on a personal basis, my first rule, and I really love the the best app for combating food waste is the cot. I really loathe uh, giving away food. My two grandmothers were cookers. They all, all uh, two of them suffered from hunger when they were, we were two. And honestly, throwing away food was just uh, no way. It was not possible. If you throw food, it's because you are ineffective. So I was a little raised like that. So I buy only what I need to eat, since I try also to lose some weight. Very, diet is a very good way to combating food waste, because you buy only what you need to eat, and you don't have too much food at home. 
Thank you. I'm sorry we don't have time to go back to the audience, but there was just so much to say, which is great. Thank you for being here. Um, I would encourage you to be inspired by the woman in the audience who challenged you as well to think about what you're doing individually and in your community. And let's give a huge round of applause for our panelists, for FEO, and for the ambassador.